All right, if you got your Bibles, and I hope you do, uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John chapter 8 this morning. We're going to look at uh, kind of a lengthy passage about this one who is the great I Am. Here in, uh, in the Gospel of John, there are several places where Jesus uses this phrase, I am. And it's not just like a, a simple phrase like you and I use it, like I am a husband, I am a father, I am a neighbor, I am a son, I am a brother. Uh, rather, when, when Jesus uses this particular phrase, following it with um, a, a title or a description of Himself, He does it seven different times in the Gospel of John, and, and, and Jesus is reaching back uh, a, a few thousand years in history to where God revealed Himself uh, to Moses on Mount Sinai when He gave Him the law, and, and when Moses uh, was afraid about how he was going to have to go and confront Pharaoh uh, earlier before that, uh, and, and he wondered, who is it that's got the authority to send me? And when God is speaking to the Israelites throughout their whole history and speaking through the prophets, there was this consistent statement and, and term of His own identity that God would give to the Old Testament saints. Uh, it, sometimes we read it uh, in terms of the, uh, the name Yahweh, the, the personal name of God, but it has its originations when, when God originally reveals Himself to Moses, when Moses is an elderly man who thinks he's washed up in life and there's nothing else that God can do with him, uh, which is a terrible spot to be in uh, when you think that there's nothing else that God can do with you. And, and God reveals Himself to Moses by saying, I am the great I am. When Moses uh, is told by God, go to Pharaoh and, and tell him to let all of my people go, and, and Moses says, well, who am I going to tell the Pharaoh who has sent me? And, you, and, and God responds, and He says, you tell him that the I am has sent you, the, the pre-existing one, the self existing one, the one who, who doesn't have any other needs of anybody to create him, the one who just simply is. And Jesus utilizes this statement, I am, seven different times in the Gospel of John. Here in John chapter 8, let me begin at verse 12 and read down through verse 30. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not valid. Even if I testify about myself, Jesus replied, my testimony is true because I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I judge no one. And if I do judge, my judgment is true because it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law, it is written that the testimony of two witnesses is true. I am the one who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Well, then they asked him, well, where is your father? You know neither me nor my father, Jesus answered. 
If you knew me, you would also know my Father. And he spoke these words by the treasury while teaching in the temple, but no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Then he said to them again, I am going away, and you will look for me, and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said again, he won't kill himself, will he? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. You are from below, he told them. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. Therefore, I told you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Who are you? They questioned. Exactly what I've been telling you from the very beginning, Jesus told them. I have many things to say and to judge about you, but the one who sent me is true, and what I have heard from him, these things I tell the world." They did not know he was speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own. But just as the Father taught me, I say these things. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, because I always do what pleases him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Uh, A moment of prayer. Father, may we be the ones that are counted among the very last of this passage, among the ones who believe in Jesus. Help us to walk with him. In his name we pray. Amen. Yeah, there's this idea that happens throughout the life of Jesus where everybody's trying to figure out who He is. They're predicting, they're theorizing, it's a lot of guesswork and conjecture and speculation. You know, we've got all sorts of phrases for that kind of of life. Uh, We say, we're going to take a stab at it, we're going to take a shot at it. My favorite maybe is, I'm going to hazard a guess. Uh, It kind of feels like that every once in a while when you're trying to figure things out. You're hazarding yourself with a guess in all of this. But Jesus makes it incredibly clear what will happen if we, if we put our faith in Him and if we walk with Him. He says, if you follow Jesus, you will never walk in darkness. That's what He makes really clear there in verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. If you follow Jesus, you will never walk in in darkness. This is a a promise that Jesus makes in the Scripture. It is only when we're not walking with Jesus, not following with Jesus, that we wind up stumbling in the dark, in the dim parts of our lives. Because when you walk with Jesus, and He is the light of life, then truth is always available to you. Truth is available in Christ, including being therefore able to understand the Scripture. He gives to us the revelation of who the Father is, And instead of sin being your default setting, Jesus begins to change things in your life. So when you follow Jesus, you don't walk in darkness. And he says that he is the light of the world. And what does light do for us spiritually? Well, it reveals the truth about God and us. 
This is what the light of the world does. This is what Jesus does in his word. This is what Jesus does in his incarnation. He reveals the truth about who God is, but he's also revealing the truth about who we are. Now, we really like the first part of that phrase. I mean, we like it all up until the word God. I mean, we want to know who God is. We want to figure out who God is. We have philosophy, and we have religious theories, and, and, we, and we have all of our practices. And you and I, as Christians, we go to what we know to be the authoritative, infallible Word of God that is His self-revelation to us. We want to know who God is. But then it gets dicey. Because not only is Jesus busy revealing the truth about God, consequently he is revealing the truth about who we are to ourselves. And, and we are people who we obscure and obfuscate and cover up and push things into the corner and, you know, push it into the cabinet and close the door and put a padlock on it. Because, you know, knowing all about God is awesome, but having to face the reality of ourselves, not awesome. And so he is busy as the light of the world, lighting up, showing the truth of who the Father is and showing the truth of who we are. But this light will also direct our steps if we will allow it. Because once you know the truth about who God is, and once you realize what the truth about yourself is, then you've got to make a decision about where you're going to go next. And the light of the world will direct your steps if you will walk in him. This is what will change everything, is what you do next once you get the revelation of who God is and the revelation about who you are. And, and I fear that there is still too many of us, both in this room and then the other 7.2999999 billion people on the planet, that A, don't know who God is, and, and B, really don't know who they are themselves. Uh, they're having a hard time with both of these revelations of, of somehow uh, being willing to face up to it. Uh, they want God to be uh, the sanctified Santa Claus. They want him to be a cosmic cop. They want him to just be, any, you know, kind of a grandfatherly figure up in heaven who tells, you know, really good bedtime stories. And they just, they, they just want him to be able to stay at a safe distance where he keeps everything moving around the universe and nothing bumping into me. And, and, and we really don't want him to get close enough for us to have to actually own up to who we are, just how dark and black our hearts are, and to have to deal with our own sin nature. Which is why I think as Jesus moves into this place where he is, he's teaching in the temple and he is confronting these religious elites, these Pharisees, these people who know the law ever so well, as he is confronting them, this is why it gets down to verse 25, which is, I think, a, a linchpin point of the passage, where, it's, where they question Jesus and they say, who are you? Now, this is not a, I can't figure out who you are, so who are you? It's not that inflection. It is, who do you think you are coming up in here, telling us all this stuff, thinking you're going to tell us off? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are marching into our temple, trying to tell us what the law says? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are forgiving sinners and confronting our sin? Who do you think you are? And my friends... We should not today be so foolish 
as to think that we can cover up our attitudes in front of God, that we have not used that same attitude before the Lord every now and again, saying, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are that you can have the run of my life? Who do you think you are that you can tell me that I can't have my sin and have a good life as well? Who do you think you are that you can tell me what is right and wrong? I can determine that for myself just fine. Who do you think you are telling me to not be so consumed with myself and get on out on mission for lost people? Who do you think you are? Have you not seen my life? Do you not understand that I'm a good person? I've been nice to my spouse. I didn't kick my dog. I returned the rake to my neighbor in a timely manner. I worked really hard for my company. I have earned my due of being able to take my ease and my rest in life. Who do you think you are telling me that I got to do other stuff? The reality is we are the Pharisees in this passage. That this is who we are most of the time is we take the who do you think you are position with God. Who do you think you are as this accusation of I've got it all covered just fine, God, and when I get into a pinch, then I'll ask you to do something. But until that time, if you could just stay at a safe distance, that would be really cool. The Pharisees could not understand the witness about Jesus because they were too bound up with the stuff of earth. And you and I get wrapped up with the stuff of earth. They were bound up with rule-keeping. They were bound up with who was clean and who was unclean. They were bound up with who was allowed and who was disallowed. They were bound up with making sure that their life had really good boundary markers on it so that those dirty people couldn't get into their personal space so they didn't have to deal with the muck and the mess of other people's lives. They were bound up with the stuff of earth. They had fooled themselves thinking that they were bound up with the stuff of heaven because they knew the law really well. They could memorize it. They could spit it out really easily. But their lives were actually bound up with the stuff of earth and full of sin, so much so that they couldn't understand the witness as to who Jesus really was, that this is actually the guy you've been waiting for. And because he didn't arrive in the way that you wanted him to arrive, you've rejected him. And they're so wound up with the stuff of earth that they couldn't accept him as the Savior. But if you look with me at verses 28 and 29 in this passage, what you will see is the revolutionary call of Jesus. And I am going to continue to bang this drum. Because the call of Jesus on your life and on my life is not tame, it is not sterile, and it is not safe. There is this great little cliche that runs around uh, the world that says the safest place to be is in the hands of the living God. No. This is the most dangerous place to be, is in the hands of the living God. This is the place where you abandon yourself, and you die to self, and you give up yourself. This is not a safe place. This is why C.S. Lewis, when he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia, and Aslan the lion is the picture and the metaphor of Jesus, that the characters in the Chronicles of Narnia say about Aslan, he's not a safe lion, but he's a good lion. There's nothing safe about following Jesus. It's the place where you die to yourself, where you give up everything. And so there's this revolutionary call of Jesus where what we see is that the death of Jesus on the cross is the defining moment for the world. He says here in verse 28, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. I mean, this is the spot. You may not recognize it right now, he says to the Pharisees, 
But when you lift me up on the cross, when I'm dying there for the sins of the world, then you're going to recognize. Then you're going to know. Condemnation and salvation are all wrapped up in the one pivotal moment of human history where Jesus is dying on the cross for our sins. This is the place where you look to the cross to see everything about who you are and everything about who Jesus is. This is the moment of history. And if you've not experienced that moment in your life, today is the day of your salvation. Today is the day that you put your faith in Christ, the one who died for you. The death of Jesus on the cross is the defining moment of the whole world. But also, I think what we see in verses 28 and 29 is that the submission of Jesus to the will of the Father is the commissioning action of the church. This is also a critical moment here for us because he says, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He and that I do nothing on my own, but just as the Father taught me, I say these things. Several times throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus drives home the point that he does nothing on his own, which feels like a little bit of a paradox to us, because this is Jesus, the Son of God, a member of the Trinity. He has existed for all of eternity. He will exist for all of eternity. He was present at the moment of creation. He will be present at the end of human history. He is the ever-existing one. He is God. And yet, Here on the earth, he submits himself to the will of the Father to give us an example that he says, I don't do anything on my own. And in the life of Jesus, mission is prioritized in this one pivotal life of human history. And if Jesus, who is the eternal Son of God, who has always existed and will always exist, and who is the Lord of glory and the Lord of creation and the King of all things, when He shows up on the earth, if He prioritizes the mission of the Father, then what, then what are we doing? You know, how are we reacting? Because if this is what Jesus prioritizes in His life, then I am wasting everything that God has given me when I decide that I'm going to chase after a thousand other things in the world and leave mission for when I got time or when I need to volunteer or when nobody else will do it. The death of Jesus on the cross is the defining moment of the world. The submission of Jesus to the will of the Father is the commissioning action for the church And thirdly, the joy of Jesus with our Father's presence is the encouraging motivation for how we live. And you think, well then, how do you get this done? He says here in verse 29, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone because I always do what pleases him. If you find yourself in a place in life where you don't feel the encouraging presence of God, it it is not because God left you. 
It is because you have walked away from all of the things of God. It is because you have walked away from his kingdom and from his kingdom purposes and from his kingdom work and from his kingdom actions. If you feel like there is a void in your life where you're not sensing the power and the presence of God, it is not because he walked away, because God never breaks his covenant. He never breaks his promises. It is because we have rebelled. And Jesus was able to enjoy the encouraging presence of his Father because he stayed submitted before him. Happiness is found in following the Father's will and work to reach the world. And so I would, I would be, I would just tell you, if you find yourself to be really unhappy in life, then go get on mission with God. If you find yourself to be miserable in your job or in your profession or in everything that's going on in your, in, in your world, then, then go get in the middle of where God is busy redeeming people, where He is busy saving people, where He is busy showing compassion to people, and you will once again experience the joy of your salvation and the joy of the Lord. Amen? Some of you are struggling with this. Because you like your comfortable life. Because you don't want to have to leave the confines of what's familiar. Because those people out there are messy. And I want to say that that's all true. It is more comfortable for me to stay home. It is easier for me to stay with people that are just like me and who are not messed up. At least their, their mess is no greater than my mess. It, it's, it's easier. Because we all know, because it shows up in this passage, that the gospel is divisive. Uh, this good news of Jesus Christ that God has broken into history in the form of His Son and has become a servant to all people and that He has died on the cross in our place for our sin, that he was physically dead and went into the grave, and he bodily rose again from the dead three days later to defeat sin and hell and, and, and my own condemnation. And we make this declaration, and we think everybody should want this, but we know it's divisive. Because right there in verse 24, it says, Therefore I told you that you will all die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You're going to die in your sins if you don't believe. And in verse 30, but meanwhile it says, And as He was saying these things, many believed in Him. And so there is this... Uh, there's a contrast of how people are going to react to Jesus. There are some people you're going to tell about the gospel, and they're going to reject it. And you've got to warn them, you are dying in your sins. Whereas there are other people who are joyfully going to, they're going to accept the message, and they're going to believe. And so what do we do as a church What is it that we do individually as believers? What is it that we do as a church? about all of this. Well, let me put it into the negative because I think that, that this passage is a great cautionary tale for the modern congregation. I think that this story is, is, is the, the Lord standing at the precipice waving a red flag trying to get us to stop so that we don't run in the wrong direction. 
What happens if you do not invite people to follow the light of the world? If you do not invite people to follow the light of the world, three things are going to happen. Number one, you don't grow in your faith. This is the first thing that happens. If you don't invite people to follow the light of the world, if you don't give personal witness and testimony about what's going on in your life, about what Jesus has done for you, you will not grow in your faith. It is part and parcel to the discipling process, to the growing up process of a Christian that we tell other people about who Jesus is. So if you find yourself in a place where you feel like you've been stuck for a while, you haven't been growing in your faith, you kind of reached, you felt like some kind of cap, some kind of ceiling, then you should ask yourself the question, have I been sharing my faith? Have I been sharing the gospel? Have I been talking to people about Jesus? Because if you don't regularly give a witness for who Jesus is, there's a certain ceiling that you're going to hit with growing in your own faith. It doesn't matter how many Bible studies you attend, how many certificates you get from the church, what your attendance track record is, how many times you serve on committees or in particular positions. If you don't share your faith, you're not going to grow in the faith. And so if you don't invite people to follow the light, you won't grow in your faith. Secondly, if you don't invite people to follow the light of the world, the church does not grow. And any way that it does grow is deceptive. But the church won't grow. I mean, if, if you wonder like I wonder, how come during worship services when an invitation is offered that lost people don't rush to the front in order to have a moment where they are saved by Christ? You know why? They're not here. They're not sitting next to you because there are empty chairs around us. A few weeks ago, our friend Dennis Pethers was here, and he reminded us again. He travels all over the world. He tries to encourage churches, and he encourages us uh, by reminding us they're not coming here. They're not showing up, and they're not showing up for lots of different reasons, but they may not be showing up because nobody invited them. Every survey that is ever done on non-churched people, this has been true for the, for the last 12 years, it is consistently held true between 85 and 88% of unchurched people will attend a church if a friend invites them. So if we want to know why our neighbors in Bradenton and Manatee County don't come to church with us, it's probably because nobody actually invited them to come. Nobody invited them to follow Jesus. Nobody invited them to come worship the King of glory. Nobody invited them to join your life group. Nobody invited them to get into your Bible study group. Nobody invited them to a dinner table where they could hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody invited them. And so the church is not going to grow. The church is never going to grow because we're cooler than any other church or we're more traditional than any other church or that we're anything like or unlike any other church. Churches grow in a healthy manner because members of the church are inviting people to follow Jesus. It's the only real way we can grow. And so if we don't invite people to follow the light of the world, we won't grow in our faith and our church won't grow. And then thirdly, the stark reality is when lost people die, they go to hell. Jesus says to these Pharisees on several occasions in this passage, you are going to die in your sins. Now, if you're here today 
and you find yourself outside of a relationship with Christ, then this is true of you. Your sins will kill you eternally, forever, separated from Christ, forever, uh, being condemned and, 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 and having a conscious existence in a place called hell forever. This is what the Bible says. I would love to take a philosophical position that's called annihilationalism, which states that when a lost person dies, they blip out of existence. I would love to be able to take that position. However, I can't find it to be true according to the Bible. Instead, what I find in the Bible is that our sin is so offensive to a holy God that when we die, we are consigned to hell forever. And you and I, if we're Christians, have been saved from that condemnation. But there are still 3.9 billion people on this planet that they have not gotten that relationship with Jesus yet. I would say, and I'm not a sociological expert, but I'm the closest thing, sadly, that you have, <laughs> is that in our county, of the 275,000 people that live in Manatee County, my estimate is that about 220,000 of those people are going to die in their sin unless we do something about it. And that means your neighbor. That means the young family that lives down the street from you. That means your classmate. That means your coworker. That means if you live in one of the retirement villages, it means there's a whole bunch of elderly people that live around you, not like you. I mean, the old people that live there. But there are a bunch of those people that, that their end is drawing nigh. And we've got to decide whether or not we care about this. Our work as a church is to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus Christ. And if we don't share uh, that Jesus is the light of the world, it has a personal consequence, it has a church consequence, but most importantly, it has an eternal consequence for people outside of the faith. So there's two questions that I want you to answer this morning. One, is there so much of the world in you that you cannot see Christ and His work? Do you have so much of the world bundled up in your heart and wrapped around your passions and your emotions and your wants and your wish list that you cannot see Jesus, that you cannot understand His work? I mean, is it that you are so consumed with the stuff of earth your 401k, your retirement package, the next job you want to get, the next house you want to get into, the next thing that you want, the next you know, little trip that you're going to take, the next whatever. Are you so wrapped up with the stuff of earth that when you, when you move through a day, you don't see Jesus and you don't see him working around you? If that is the case for you, this morning the call for you is to repent. It is for you to lay down your life and say, Jesus, whatever it is that you want to do with me, I'm ready for you to do it. Wherever it is that you want to send me, I am ready to go. Whoever it is that you want me to witness to, I am ready to talk about Jesus. I am ready to love on broken people. I am ready to show compassion to sinners. I am ready to welcome them into my life and into my home and into my life group and into my church. I am ready to be able to see Jesus and how he's working in the world. 
which dovetails with the second question for those of you that are believers. And that is this, who must you tell about the light of the world? Who must you tell? Let me state clearly, as I have said before, if you look at a question like number two, who must you tell about the light of the world? And your response is, I don't know any lost people. Then here's the answer. You need more friends. <laughs> and I would encourage you that you start at the Lost Kangaroo or on Main Street or over here at Oscura Coffee Shop or that you start knocking on doors in your neighborhood. You need more friends. Because there are a bunch of lost people around us that are dying in their sins because they don't know us. Because the answer is right next door to them and nobody has told them. And you can no longer fool yourself into thinking, but everybody knows about Jesus. Everybody's been to church. Everybody knows this stuff. There are people in this room who have experienced salvation within the last few years because somebody witnessed to them who didn't know anything about Jesus prior to. This is, this is us putting on blinders saying, well, everybody has got a chance. Right, because Jesus put you in their life. And so if you want to grow in your faith, if you want our church to grow, and you want less people going to hell, which are all three things we should be able to agree upon, then we've got to start talking about Jesus more and telling people to follow the light of the world. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray. Doug's going to lead us in another song together. But before we get there, I'm going to ask you to do something relatively that maybe you're not ready to or you're going to feel like, oh, this is out of my comfort zone. It's not, all right? Because here's the deal. Everybody somewhere in the course of your lifetime in response to a question has raised their hand, okay? Somewhere in third grade, your teacher, you know, made you raise your hands. Somewhere along the way, you got excited at a football match, and you raised your hands in celebration. Some of you this morning got really excited about all creatures of our God and King. Raised your hands. So, by a show of hands, how many of you can pull the name up in your brain right now of the person that you must tell the gospel to. Needs to be all of us. I mean, there ought to be a list of people that your heart is breaking over, that they are dying in their sins. I mean, not like they're going to get scuffed up, not that they're going to have a little fender bender. They're dying in their sins. Doug, band, y'all come on up here. I want to just take a moment and pray. And I'm going to pray first for us. I'm going to pray secondly for your friends. And thirdly, I'm going to pray for the decisions that you need to make this morning. And here's what I'm going to encourage you to do, that when we begin to sing, because when I get done praying, I'm going to ask everybody to stand Band's going to lead us in singing another song. And during this time, I'll be here at the front. I'm going to ask Angie to be down here with me as well. And if there's a decision you need to make, then cool, we will talk with you this morning. I'll talk with you anytime. 
But here's what I hope that a bunch of you will feel the compulsion to do, and that is to get up here and on your face before the Father with tears streaming out of your eyes, crying out for the salvation of your friend, your grandkid, your neighbor, your coworker, because they're dying in their sins with a commitment that you're not just praying for the Lord of the harvest to send out a worker, but that you're praying that the Lord of the harvest will send you out as the worker. So let's pray.